Richard Mashiski is the Executive Vice President for Science and Regulatory Advocacy and the Chief Medical Officer at the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, Pharma. Previously, he was the Deputy Center Director for Science Operations for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at CEDAR and the Chief Medical Officer at Genzyme Corporation. Richard received his medical degree from Northwestern University Medical School and was previously at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Harvard Medical School. Richard, it's a pleasure to speak to you this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. Glad to be here. So you've been a practitioner, a very successful one, and then you've, you've crossed over to the dark side and joined industry. How did your opinion of research and industry change being on the outside and then moving inside? Well, I think what you rapidly gain is an appreciation for our the ecosystem that we have that creates new medicines, uh, particularly strong here in the United States, that it uh, really takes um, a village to create these medicines and that um, out of academia, we often generate uh, great ideas. Um, We often conduct research that identifies new molecules or new aspects of biology uh, or their relevance to certain diseases. But what you really find out is that in industry, that's where you actually create the medicines. That's where you do all the hard work, the blocking and tackling, um, and the risk-taking that it takes to get from a discovery or an idea to an actual medicine for a patient. You know, it's a, let's say, for example, um, in academia, we might have discovered a new molecule that is a receptor on a certain type of cell. And you think that maybe that could be an important factor in a certain disease. But in fact, an industry has to identify how do you interact with that molecule? How do you block it or how do you stimulate it? And you have to go through large screenings of other molecules that might do that. Then you have to uh, test those molecules uh, again and see if you can tweak them and make them better at what they do or make them less toxic or make them more effective. And then you have to be able to test them in in the animal models uh, of that disease and see how well they really work and what kind of doses might you need. And then you have to manufacture enough to take it to people and conduct clinical trials in people with that. And and then you finally have to figure out all the different pieces of of how to put it together in the right package um, for a regulator like FDA to take a look at it. You know, the industry is the most regulated industry on earth. And so there's a tremendous degree of oversight and care and quality checking that goes at every single step of this, which is something I don't think you always have a visibility of when you're outside uh, of the industry. In fact, um, you know, I think what really impressed me was that rigor by which all of these activities are done uh, because of that oversight. And because that happens behind closed doors, do you feel that a lot of the academics don't see that and that's where a lot of these misconceptions occur? Uh, Absolutely. You know, I think uh, a lot of things came out of this terrible pandemic that we've gone through um, in the past uh, year or more. Uh, but I, I think one of the things has, has brought to a greater visibility to the public the important role uh, that the pharmaceutical industry plays. Uh, the fact that um, its investments over time had led to technologies that could be employed really quickly 
to help drive the solutions, uh, such as the vaccines that turned out to be so effective, and the ability to work so hand in hand in a collaborative fashion with each other, and quite frankly, with a government as well. And I think that, uh, you know, that should, I hope, bring to light to people how important this ecosystem is in working um, the way it does. So we've touched on some of the misconceptions that academia has about industry, vice versa. Let's flip that around. Now that you're working inside industry, obviously, industry people may have some misconceptions about academia. How does that work in the other direction? Well, you know, a lot of industry people come from academia, so there aren't <laughs> One would hope, yeah. necessarily that many misconceptions. You, you readily appreciate some of the roles that uh, academia can play. Uh, I think there's a great sense of collaboration. Uh, some of the academic expertise is often used by companies, um, you know, all the way through the design of clinical trials, the conduct of clinical trials. Um, there is always um, a lot of collaboration, even at the bench, um, when uh, they work together. Um, and let's also understand that academicians often spin out their ideas and form their own companies <laughs> and uh, become part of industry um, very quickly uh, as well. So, you know, I think that uh, it's really, again, it comes back to this ecosystem that I started out with, um, that you, you readily see how the two uh, parts of this ecosystem work uh, together and each have a really uh, different important roles. You know, though, the, the, the one thing that I did immediately appreciate looking back at academia was that the same rigor didn't exist. You know, there wasn't the same level of oversight. And uh, so often things are a little looser. Uh, I think uh, the public has this misperception that if it's done by an academic, somehow it's true. <laughs> but if it's done by industry, it's biased. But I can tell you that bias exists also in academia and sometimes intellectual bias, but also because, you know, they may want to spin this out into a company. There are other biases that may uh, may enter uh, into the picture just as well. So, you know, I do think that it still is something that we all need to um, make sure our eyes are wide open. Obviously, you've spoken about spinning out from academic research. A lot of that comes from NIH funding, as you know. Um, we've done a lot of work looking at that recently, and we've published research in partnership with Pharma, Bio, and a bunch of other organizations. There's an increasing chorus of voices that says that it's the NIH, not industry, that's really duly 100% responsible for getting treatments to market and society's paying twice. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, obviously no. <laughs> from, uh, from what I've said before, I, sure. I really think nothing could be further from the truth. Where's this opinion coming from then, Richard? Why, why do we have it? I think there is uh, some wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, in the rush to try to control drug prices, it would be nice to think that you could uh, take over and take away the, the usual market forces that have worked so successfully in, in uh, creating the right incentives and the right ecosystem to uh, have the strongest and best R&D ecosystem in the world here in the U.S. And, and that uh, perhaps uh, you can uh, instead uh, somehow still have the right innovation despite injuring that innovative R&D ecosystem. You know, I, I do think that um, there are studies that sort of maybe give a misperception that, uh, you know, if in fact some NIH grant allowed some academic researcher somewhere 
to identify that molecule that I spoke of earlier on, uh, that that somehow means that now that that medicine that resulted from uh, a lot greater degree of investment and hard work by industry was somehow invented. And it sort of ignores this huge chain of important events uh, that need to take place before a medicine can safely and effectively uh, be given to patients. You know, I think, for example, uh, Anthony Fauci, uh, who I think we all recognize now after the past year. We've heard the name, I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he's always spotlighted the industry role by noting we always need a pharmaceutical partner, I think is a direct quote from, from him. And And if we look at the numbers, for example, in 2018, the biopharmaceutical industry invested over $100 billion in R&D, all of that in drug development. In contrast, the NIH budget in 2018 was a little over $35 billion, and only a very small percentage of that was actually directly related to drug development. So you just can't replace uh, $100 billion of R&D uh, and get the same kind of innovation and, uh, that you can with our current ecosystem. In fact, when the Congressional Budget Office uh, took a careful look at this, they summed it up uh, that the public sector research and private R&D are complements and not substitutes. So even our own government has been very outspoken on this uh, important issue. Yes, and there's been an increasing chorus of voices that are recognizing that if you just simply lower drug prices, that doesn't solve the problem because it's going to radically impact R&D. There's no question about that. There's a great example of great academic research still needing industry. If we look at what happened with Oxford, produce a very effective vaccine, but when they spun it out, they still spun it out to a stock market and got investors and made it a private company. They didn't keep it internally, and they you know, championed and partnered with AstraZeneca to develop this. They couldn't do that on their own. Do you think that's indicative of the challenges to trying to do this and the fact that if industry's not there, it just ain't going to happen? Absolutely, Dwayne. I think, as, as you said, the study that you're involved with you know, really uh, showed that, I think, tremendously, and, and as has study after study. And vignette after vignette, I can tell you from my own personal experience. Um, you know, when I was in academia, I was part of a team in the laboratory. We identified a molecule that were on a certain type of immune cell, the lymphocyte, that uh, helps anchor lymphocytes in the intestines, liver, and pancreas, and but predominantly around the intestines. And uh, so we were able to take it that far and identify that, but it wasn't till it was licensed right. to a pharmaceutical company who invested millions to take that idea and that molecule, which in fact itself um, was a monoclonal antibody, but not one you could give to humans, um, and made it into a real medicine and tested it and showed that in fact today, it's a very effective medicine against inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. Yeah, our study on that topic, the study showed that statistically when industry is a whole, whether it's venture capital, angel investor, mezzanine, uh, any sort of institutional investor or industry as a whole are not present. If it's just public funding, the probability of market entry of that asset is zero. 
And as you see more private funding go in and become a larger and larger percentage of the funding mix, the probability of that asset becoming market entry reaches ultimately, once you get over 90%, close to 50-50. So really, it is the statistical drive of the private sector that's pushing this over the finish line. Why do you think that's not understood? Where's the breakdown happening? You know, I think um, the NIH is very effective at what it does. Um, and it's also very effective at gaining congressional support. And, uh, you know, I think it at times uh, may help um, give that impression. But again, as I said, I think there is a lot of wishful thinking uh, by a number of parties that somehow this can all be done without that kind of expertise and massive investment. And what we've seen is when that doesn't occur, it's it's highly unlikely. Very highly unlikely. And what we've seen in Europe as well is they've put in pricing control since 1980. The productivity of the European pharmaceutical sector has essentially tumbled off a cliff. Absolutely. And it's and where has it gone? It's gone to the United States. 70% of all mature biotech assets now are acquired and moved to the United States. Again, Oxford University. You can't get more British than Oxford University it listed on the NASDAQ. What is it about the U.S. ecosystem that makes it so unique, Richard? Well, why is it so dominant? Well, I think it's a a number of factors that all come together here. And it starts again with the ecosystem that we've created here in the United States. We have a strong academic system that uh, is well supported by the government that uh, can provide basic discoveries that contributes um, and uh, to, to the situation. It has a very strong pharmaceutical sector, has a very strong biotech sector, It has a very strong investment sector that can also contribute and help drive the investment. For example, the investment into small companies and help grow those companies over uh, ideas and let those ideas grow within an industry setting where expertise can be put together that drives this and then partner with even larger uh, pharmaceutical companies who are often working with many of these small companies to help bring these ultimately uh, to the patient with the ever greater amounts of expertise and experience that many small companies sometimes don't have and and need to to work with the larger companies. So we have this entire ecosystem that works so well. And behind it all and and underpinning it is the Bayh-Dole Act. Um, that we have uh, here in America, which which really allows... Can you, can you describe the Bayh-Dole Act? Because I, I think that's 100% correct. In big picture, what does Bayh-Dole do? Yeah, in the big picture, it sort of, it allows, first off, it's it's based on intellectual property rights, right? And, and here in the United States, we have strong intellectual property rights, which is another important pillar of this successful ecosystem that we have. And that allows people to have ideas and drive those ideas forward, right, with people willing to invest in those ideas because they then uh, have uh, the potential to uh, be rewarded for their investments that they also drive, right? And and so that helps bring all of this together. Uh, And Bayh-Dole allows uh, publicly funded research to have uh, IP protection by the researchers, the universities, for example, here, who then can license it to uh, industry for industry to work. And that has worked so incredibly well. Before that, you know, a very small percentage of uh, government patents, for example, were ever picked up by industry. 
because of concern that it might lead to price controls and no longer an ability to use market forces or to allow market forces to provide the right levels of reward that investors could then rely on or that companies themselves could rely on uh, because of the investments that they have to make in, in the private sector. When you look at the productivity of the NIH value chain that goes to industry, I mean, it was really turbocharged by Baidol. It really was a huge success. And now that's, in many ways, that's being um, seen as a jaundiced opinion, which is really unfortunate. It, it is, because we have built a, a real juggernaut here in America, and it's one of our most valuable industries. And it is the envy of many other countries um, who would love to see us stumble. <laughs> Absolutely. What, what's intriguing, though, is, is we're still getting this idea that we can do this without industry. And, and I, I want to point out a new proposal of the Biden administration, the new $6.5 billion program called ARPA-H, which is model on DARPA, the innovation engine for the military working with uh, university spun out research. But this is going to be specifically for drug discovery. Do you think this is an appropriate role for NIH and the private sector regarding innovation? Do you, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, you know, I think we've, in this ecosystem, we've been talking about the role of NIH, NIH funding, uh, and, I, and I think in some ways this fits part of that, um, although it would still predominantly lead to discovery engines, I hope, and uh, it may offer uh, the ability to do a better job of creating, translating research, the kind of uh, what the tools that are helpful to get from discovery towards the identification of real medicines, for example, the development of, of valuable animal models uh, that could be, uh, could be used or uh, manufacturing technologies that could be used. I think those are, those are things that could be uh, very helpful that could come out of this. And, and also maybe funding for small companies, for example, who are willing to take risks in certain areas. Although quite frankly, I, the industry is pretty good at taking risks in many of these areas. But nevertheless, that could be an area where I could see um, something like ARPA-H having a, a potential role. I think it's interesting that NIH itself has NCATs on the translational medicine side. So hopefully this wouldn't be a duplicative process to the things that uh, exist already. But I think it will be fanciful if people think this is uh, the answer to creating new medicines. If we look at mRNA as a technology, this was a known technology that unfortunately there just wasn't market appetite for it, but it was sitting there waiting to be used. And then it's amazing when we had the opportunity, we were able to deploy this and prove it in, you know, literally six months. The, the filing was done for the phase three from Pfizer and Moderna within six months, which is just remarkable. Obviously, that was an adaptive pathway. Many of us who look at this for profession say, boy, it would sure be nice if we could do some more accelerated evidence-based approvals that don't take 10, 15 years. It'd be nice if we could get that timing down. Do you think that this is potentially a model that we could start looking at with effective therapies that with high unmet medical needs, certainly COVID-19 was ticks all those boxes. Do you think this could be a regulatory model that we should investigate more that would actually free up capital and allow things to be more efficient? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to see that happen. My career has been all about innovation and, and the creation of new medicines. And, and so I do think that, uh, again, if there's a silver lining to this horrible pandemic, it, it is that we've seen an unprecedented degree of collaboration 
which has always been an important part of the ecosystem that I have been talking about. But it rose to great new heights. You know, I think that that collaboration is something that I hope we continue to find the best ways. And, and that includes a collaboration between industry and regulators, for example, where I, I think there was truly, um, you know, a common mission and goal to find a solution as quick as possible. And uh, both sides were working seven days a week, 24 hours uh, to try and make that happen. And both were willing to say, what are the risk-based approaches? Where is it that we need to really focus to make sure we have high quality and safe and effective um, uh, medicines? Um, and so I do think that uh, those are important elements uh, that we'd all love to sort of see coming forward. For example, when many medical centers had to sort of close some of their clinical trial sites because, you know, they had to really control the flow of people coming in and out of centers. That caused a huge impact on clinical trials. It was um, an entire generation of new medicines that were at risk. But the digital transformation that we've had, telemedicine and uh, a number of other kind of approaches led to this concept of decentralized clinical trials. Well, that actually was a concept that was in play, but it really helped bring it forward. And, and many of these trials were able to be conducted through a hybrid approach where we're using some of these digital technologies to uh, work with patients without necessarily having them constantly come into a clinical trial site. And I think that's something that's going to stay and uh, help us move forward um, uh, into uh, the future. I think there was also a number of other tools that can make us more efficient. Uh, the use of seamless clinical trial designs, uh, sure. adaptive clinical trials, um, the sort of collaboration that led to large-scale platform trials, um, I think was another really important element that came out of this. And at the same time that we're going through the pandemic, we also, as a society, were facing a recognition of the health equity issues that were unfair for many of our underserved populations. And part of that was how they participate in clinical trials. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, or led to, uh, or it, at least the recognition uh, that this was a truly an issue that even though people have worked on for years, we finally needed to get over uh, to make sure that we had the right data. And so the need for community-based clinical research, I think, uh, really came to the fore. And it's something that we in industry have taken a serious commitment to try and also uh, find the best solution and drive it to the right place. Yeah, regardless of people's opinion of the Affordable Care Act of the Obama administration, there were serious provisions in there to try and have more clinical trials run in you know minority communities in the United States. How do you see that progressing, Richard? I mean, do you think that that's progressing in pace? Is there more acceleration there from the industry? Do you think that's going to continue to be a focus? I think the issue of clinical trial diversity is truly now a commitment from industry. Um, you know, we just finished a two-day workshop that was, I think, a real landmark uh, sponsored by Pharma. We had well over 500 participants, 150 organizations participated. It was a real chance to hear from the communities themselves what they needed, and at the same time to try and identify the right solutions that can uh, solve some of the uh, 
barriers that have existed to clinical trial diversity being at the right place. One of the other things about the vaccines and the after effects of the vaccination is now we have a functioning mRNA platform putting on your research hat. Where do you think the next area is going to be for research there? Do you think we're going to start seeing oncology products that mRNA were originally designed to target? Uh, where is this going to go? Well, I, I think it's fascinating. And, and I, I will just use the moment to also denote that mRNA technology was something that was being invested in for quite some time by industry. Absolutely. Millions and millions of dollars had gone there. And originally, not for use as a vaccine, but yes, for, for use in these other areas. And I think it it illustrates that this is difficult. Certainly. Making medicines is not a simple uh, endeavor. It, it, it is complex. It requires uh, tremendous expertise. Uh, it requires a little luck. And it requires a lot of hard work. I do think that the future uh, could be very bright for things like messenger RNA technology now, in that we do have an example of where it can work. And learning from this... I do think will open further doors for the technology. If you had a magic wand, and if you could, what's the one thing you wish you could change immediately about the way medicines are developed in the United States right now? Yeah, well, um, it's a list. It's not one. <laughs> you got a few. Go ahead. You can give me a few. We got time. So, you know, I've been at this business for a long time, so I've had a chance to put together a list. Right now on my mind is certainly uh, achieving the right level of clinical trial diversity. I'd love to see that happen. I think that's really important. I'd love to see this collaboration uh, work together. I'd love to see the digital revolution to really bring drug development fully into the 21st century uh, with the use of digital tools, decentralized clinical trial approaches. But I also see great opportunities that can go beyond using real world evidence in uh, drug development, I think is increasing. And I think, again, the pandemic helped show the value that it can bring to the table. I even believe it or not, I know it's a little nerdy, but uh, you know, I, I think that how we think about uh, some of the basic ways we do clinical research uh, using, okay, this is going to be very nerdy, frequentist statistics, you know, which has kind of been a basis of it, limits us, mm -hmm. limits us. And it's uh, not absolutely necessary. There are other approaches that I think really help us with this concept of adaptive clinical trial design, but that goes beyond that to adaptive clinical development programs that I think could greatly improve the efficiency of uh, clinical trials, which means that we can afford to test more medicines uh, for the same amounts of investment that I think are would be really important for patients. Richard. Thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to hopefully one day having a coffee face-to-face. -face. Same here, Dwayne. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.